Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 170, and it's another year in the life episodes where we go through one year and talk about the various events that happened that year. So for this episode, I chose 1561. I've done this with a couple of other episodes before 1601 I did. Um, 1537, maybe. I think I've done it with three or four. So I'll link to all of them in the show notes for this episode, which will be at englandcast.com slash 1561. englandcast.com slash 1561. So why did I choose this year? Well, it was about three years into Elizabeth's reign. The religious settlement was still being hashed out and Elizabeth was still establishing herself as queen. And a bunch of really interesting things happened that year. It was a year when a major London landmark was badly damaged by lightning. Calvinists settled in England. Merchants headed to Moscow. Mary, Queen of Scots, was headed back to Scotland from France and denied safe passage in England. And the very first novel ever published in English, according to some academics, came out. It was a big year. But first, I want to do patron thank yous because it's been a while. It's been a minute. And some new patrons have hopped on board. So thank you to all of the patrons of this show. You can support the show for as little as a dollar an episode and join this group of very sophisticated, intelligent, (laughs) beautiful people who support indie podcasts. They are indie podcast superheroes. And they are Cheryl, Kelly, Bex, Taylor, Heather, which is such a great name, Juliet, Shamala, 
I love your name, Marie, Cheyenne, Sharon, Joelle, Kimberly, Joanna, Tracy, Alexandra, Justine, Rachel, Paul, Vivian, Jen, Jennifer, Jill, Sharon, Michael, Babette, Delia, John, Katie, Kimberly, Helen, Wendy, Jim, Vicki, Donna, Twyla, Kara, Sarah, another John, Susan, Selene, Andrea, Catherine, Ian, Kendra, Joanne, Kathy, another Kathy, Kathy with a Y, Kathy with an I, Rebecca from Tudor's Dynasty, another great podcast, Al, Shandor, we're almost done, you guys. We also have Candace and then Jurgen. That's my dad. Hi, dad. <laughs> so again, if you want to join this amazing group of beautiful people who are so smart <laughs> and total indie podcast superheroes, like I said, you can go to patreon.com slash Englandcast. Patreon is a website that allows you to become a patron of shows you can support for as little as a dollar an episode. So patreon.com slash Englandcast. All right, let's start looking at 1561, shall we? As we look at 1561, we should also remember that 1560 was actually a pretty stellar year for Elizabeth in terms of foreign policy with Scotland and France. Queen Mary had been at war with France on behalf of her husband, Philip of Spain, Queen Mary, Mary I, Elizabeth's sister, married to Philip of Spain, went to war with France. That's how they lost Calais. But Elizabeth had made peace with France and Scotland. But she was actually a little bit worried when the French seemed to be taking more control in Scotland on behalf of Marie of Guise, who was trying to run the country, and was very unpopular while her young daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, was in France. Does that all make sense? So French troops are in Scotland supporting the regency of Marie of Guise. Elizabeth supported the Protestant rebels led by John Knox. And in 1560, there were two treaties expelling the French and reaffirming Elizabeth as the recognized Queen of England. And that also would ratify an alliance between England and Scotland. That was an early test of Elizabeth's foreign policy. And in theory, Scotland had agreed, but Mary Queen of Scots hadn't yet ratified the treaty. And so that was actually what was going to lead to a lot of issues in 1561, as Mary Queen of Scots wanted to have safe passage to go back to Scotland. In December of 1560, Mary had become a widow. So this is all quite fresh in January 1561. There was a lot of toing and froing of ambassadors between Scotland and France, negotiating Mary's return to Scotland, trying to decide her future after the appropriate mourning period had been observed. And Mary had never actually ratified that treaty, which would have acknowledged Elizabeth's supremacy in England, which would have acknowledged Elizabeth as the rightful queen. And of course, Mary, Queen of Scots, was a little bit hesitant to do that because she kind of believed that maybe she was the rightful queen. Who knows? So that was like the picture with France and Scotland going into 1561. During the holiday festivities of 1560-61, there was a lot of talk also about Elizabeth's relationship with Robert Dudley and the Queen's love life. 
So Amy Robsart, Robert Dudley's wife, had just died in September of 1560. Robert had just come back to court, albeit he wore mourning for six months. The official commission looking into Amy's death wouldn't actually pronounce their verdict until August, August of 1561. And there were rumors following Robert Dudley around that whole year questioning his role in the death of his wife. John Dimmick was a merchant. He was about to leave for Sweden with jewels. And he wrote, On the morrow after New Year's Day, I dined with John Ashley, master of the jewel house, and told him I would depart by the morrow after Twelfth Day. He asked to see me again and said that whereas it was thought that the queen was verily minded to have the Lord Robert, it was not so. For he had given her a notable New Year's gift, and it was thought that she would have given him at least 4,000 pounds in land and made him a duke, whereas she has given him but 400 and not of the very best land. So, there was a lot of speculation as to what was going on between Elizabeth and Robert Dudley. Also, that merchant off to Sweden was also headed there in part because Eric of Sweden was busy trying to court the queen as well. So the queen's love life was, was a big thing going on this year. The queen was busy handing out New Year's gifts. On January 6th, John Tamworth, who was the keeper of the privy purse, paid in way of the queen's highness's reward to Mrs. Penn, widow, sometime King Edward's nurse. They paid her 60 French crowns, a total of 18 pounds. The next day, Elizabeth received a New Year's gift from Sir Anthony Cook. He sent Elizabeth a book, Queen Theophania, by St. Gregory, translated into Latin with an English dedication. I send your highness this remembrance of the new year, not of gold or silver, whereof ye have plenty, and I little in comparison, but such as I think more fit for you to receive and for me to give, having respect to the treasure of knowledge that doth more excel, wherewith God hath plentifully endowed you. Cook also suggested that the queen should herself translate St. Gregory either in better Latin or good English, which if you have leisure, none can do better than yourself. Speaking of translations, the next day on January 8th, John Bodley, father of Thomas Bodley, founder of the Bodleian Library, was given a license for seven years to print the English Bible with annotations faithfully translated and finished, dedicated to the queen, no other to print it on pain of the queen's displeasure and forfeiture to the crown of 40 shillings for every Bible printed. So, John Bodley was printing English Bibles. William Cecil was also rising. On January 10th, he was made the master of the court wards. He was not a fan of Robert Dudley and felt threatened by the idea of Dudley potentially becoming a king consort. He became one of the sources of the rumors about Dudley potentially murdering his wife. Speaking of the rumors, they were flying in January. The Spanish ambassador wrote home on the 22nd of January. De Quadra wrote to King Philip II. Today I was visited by Sir Henry Sidney, Lord Robert Dudley's brother-in-law, who spoke of how much inclined the Queen was to marry Dudley. Sidney wondered that I had not suggested to your majesty that you write in Dudley's favor. As to Lady Dudley's death, Amy Robsart, Sidney was certain that it was accidental, and he had never been able to learn otherwise, although he had inquired with great care and knew that public opinion held to the contrary. Even preachers in the pulpits discoursed on the matter in a way that was prejudicial to the honor and interests of the queen. 
I well know the state of this affair and the feelings of the people, and I am certain that if she do not obtain your majesty's consent, she will not dare to publish the match. And if she finds herself unable to obtain your majesty's favor, she may throw herself to the bad and satisfy her desires, by which she is governed to an extent that would be a grievous fault in a person of any condition, much more in a woman of her rank. Things have reached such a pitch that her chamberlain has left her. Cecil is he most opposed to the business, but he has given way in exchange for the offices held by Treasurer Perry, who died recently of sheer grief. I must not omit to say also that the common opinion confirmed by certain physicians is that this woman is unhealthy, and it is believed certain that she will not have children, although there is no lack of people who say she has already had some, but of this I have seen no trace and do not believe it. Early February saw some of the first correspondence about Mary, Queen of Scots. On February the 4th, she wrote to Queen Elizabeth requesting safe conduct for Lord James Stuart, who was her half-brother, and 60 people who were about to repair to her in France. So they were headed to France in part to negotiate her return. And then on February the 6th from Edinburgh, William Maitland wrote to Cecil, ambassadors are going to the Queen of Scots. Lord James shall be the principal. He is zealous in religion, known to be true and constant, honest, and not able to be corrupted. The sum of the legation is to know her mind. It is wished that she would come without force and take her journey through England, where her own subjects will be content to receive her at Dover or elsewhere, and accompany her honorably to her own country, thinking that the meeting of the two queens shall breed quietness for their times. So people were already starting to think about Mary and Elizabeth potentially meeting. It was something that they were trying to negotiate during 1561. Valentine's Day saw more plotting and romance. On Saturday, the 15th of February, the Spanish ambassador was at Whitehall for an audience, and de Quadra wrote to Philip on February the 23rd, I met Lord Robert Dudley. He besought me, in your majesty's name, to recommend the Queen Mary him. I said I would request the queen to make up her mind to marry and settle the succession, and if during the conversation any particular person should be discussed, I would speak of him as favorably as he could wish. He begged me to speak to the queen at once. I did so two days afterwards. After much circumlocution, she said she wished to confess to me and tell me her secret in confession, which was that she was no angel and did not deny that she had some affection for Lord Robert for the many good qualities he possessed, but she certainly had never decided to marry him or anyone else, although she daily saw more clearly the necessity for her marriage, and that it was desirable that she should marry an Englishman. And she asked me to tell her what your majesty would think if she married one of her servitors, as the Duchess of Suffolk and the Duchess of Somerset had done. I told her you would be pleased to hear of her marriage with whomever it might be, and had great affection for Lord Robert. Robert came the next day to thank me and repeated to me all the details of what I had said to the queen, who he told me was much pleased. So there's all kinds of romance going on, and Robert is trying to get into the queen's ear through way of the Spanish ambassador. Throughout February 16th to 18th, there were Shrovetive masks and plays, including one called Huff, Snuff, and Ruff. Christopher Plater wrote to Thomas Kitston on February 22nd, there was also at the court new plays, which lasted almost all night. The name of the play was Huff, Snuff, and Ruff, with other masks, both of ladies and gentlemen. 
February the 17th was Shrove Monday, and there were wrestlers and masters of defense at Whitehall in the morning. And then in the afternoon of February 17th, there was a great challenge played afford the Queen's grace with all the masters of fence. And certain challengers did challenge all men, whatsoever they be, with Morris Pike, long sword and bastard sword, and sword and buckler, and sword and dagger, and cross staff, and staves, and other weapons. And the next day they played again. Then on February 19th, it was Ash Wednesday, and Alexander Noel, the Dean of St. Paul's, made a godly sermon to begin the Lenten season. We did an episode a few years ago on Henry VIII's debasing of the coinage and how both Edward and Mary tried to buy back the debased coins and replace them with better money. You can check out that episode in the show notes. I'll have a link to it at englandcast.com slash 1561 in the show notes for this episode. Anyway, in 1560 and 61, Elizabeth was going full steam ahead on the new coinage project. And in March of 1561, William Blunt, who was an official at the Mint, was given an allowance for the charges of Eloy, including for colors bought at his sending for to Richmond to have drawn the Queen's picture, and also for a house for a Frenchman and setting up his engines and also for that he should grave and work nigh the court. Money is being given to the mint now to set up the new coinage. By the end of March, James Stewart was on his way to France to join Mary, Queen of Scots, to discuss her return to Scotland, but he stopped at Whitehall to visit the Queen. An anonymous chronicler wrote, The Lord James passeth through England into France, to the Queen of Scots in March 1561. He was lodged at his going over at the secretary's house in Cannon Row, well used of the Queen, and in the end of May returneth back out of France. So there's these discussions going on with Scotland, probably talking about meeting Mary and what was going to happen to Mary. William Cecil had a child with his second wife, Mildred, and on April 22nd was the christening, and Elizabeth was the godmother to the child and gave a gilt cup with a cover as a christening gift. On April 23rd, St. George's Day, there was garter ceremonies at Whitehall. The knights went into morning prayer. The queen was in the processions at the service and at dinner with the knights. Henry Machen wrote, the choir of 30, singing, O God, the Father of Heaven, have mercy, led the procession through the outer court, strewed with rushes to the gate. After came Mr. Garter and Mr. Norris, and Mr. Dean of the Chapel, in copes of crimson and satin, with a cross of St. George red, and eleven knights of the garter in their robes, and after the Queen's Grace in her robes, and all the guards in their rich coats, and so back to the chapel. After service done, back through the hall to Her Grace's chamber, and that done, Her Grace and the Lords went to dinner, and Her Grace were godly served, and after the Lords sitting on one side served in gold and silver. In May, the Elizabethan break with Rome would pick up speed. On Thursday, May the 1st, there was a consultation at Greenwich. At the Queen's command, the full Privy Council held a consultation on the request for the papal nuncio to come to England with letters from the Pope. It was fully accorded by all and every of the said councillors, without any manner of contradiction or doubt moved by any of them, that the nuncio should not come into any part of the Queen's dominions. Then the Spanish ambassador de Quadra wrote to Philip, the queen sent yesterday to ask me to go to the palace today as her council had orders to reply to me about the nuncio. 
I found that they had the answer in writing, I told them that they might read what they liked. The paper contained two principal points, namely that the Queen did not consider it well to admit the nuncio inasmuch as it was against the law and good policy of the country, and that, as the Queen understood that the object of the nuncio's coming was to intimidate her to the holding of the concilio, she informed me that she had decided not to give her acquiescence to such concilio, nor to consent to the continuance of that which had commenced at Trent. So the queen is really starting her official break with Rome that Mary, Mary I, had brought England back to Rome. And we're right in the middle of Elizabeth working out the religious settlement here, which would take another two years. But in 1561, that was officially when Elizabeth said, yeah, we're going to make the break with Rome an official thing. So that's kind of starting to happen here. On May the 14th, Anthony Jenkins left for Persia, undertaken for the merchant adventurer's discovery of lands. So he wanted to travel to Russia and then continue through to Persia. He arrived in Moscow in August of 1561. He wanted to talk trade with Ivan the Terrible, but he actually wasn't able to have an interview with Ivan the Terrible until March of 1562. Then he traveled across Russia down the Caspian Sea into Persia, where he reached the court of Shah Tamzasp. And then he got preferential trading deals on behalf of the Muscovy Company in England. But what he really wanted to do was break into the Indian Ocean trade, and that was blocked by the Portuguese at Ormuz on the Persian Gulf. And the sale of English goods was going to be limited by competition from the Venetians, who were operating via the Mediterranean through Syria. So he had this amazing journey. And you know what? I talked about him in a couple of different episodes. First, there was the Muscovy Company episode that we did years and years ago, but I'll have a link to that. Then also, I talked about Anthony Jenkins in some episodes I did on Elizabeth's relationship with the Middle East and with the Sultan. So I'm going to link to both of those in the show notes for this episode as well. It's really interesting. So that happened in May. Anthony Jenkinson leaves for his long journey. He was gone for four or five years, long time. And then also in May, the first Calvinist church was founded by a group who fled Flanders. So the very first Calvinist church in England is being built. There were already Calvinists already. There were Calvinists already living in England, but they didn't have their official church, and that was founded in May. At the end of May, there's more conversation from James Stewart to Nicholas Throckmorton, who was in France. He wrote, After my arrival to London, I passed to the court where it pleased the Queen's Majesty and the Council to show me more favor nor ever I could deserve. Lord James was leaving then to return back to Scotland. But maybe the biggest event of the year was in June, when on June 4th, St. Paul's Cathedral was struck by lightning and set on fire. We hear the great spire of the steeple of St. Paul's Church was fired by lightning, which burnt downward the spire to the battlements and stonework and bells so furiously that within the space of four hours, the same steeple with all the roofs of the church were consumed to the great sorrow and perpetual remembrance of the beholders. A true report on the fire says that in the evening came the Lord Clinton, Lord Admiral from the court at Greenwich, whom the Queen's Majesty, as soon as the rage of the fire was espied by Her Majesty, and others in the court, sent to assist my Lord Mayor, 
for the suppressing of the fire. There were a lot of stories of how the fire got started. And in 1753, um, almost 200 years later, David Henry, who was a writer for the Gentleman's Magazine, he got a rumor started or revived a rumor that was already around in his historical description of St. Paul's Cathedral. He wrote that a plumber had confessed on his deathbed that he had left a pan of coals and other fuel in the tower when he went for dinner. But the number of contemporary eyewitnesses to the storm and the investigation that they had afterwards pretty much contradicts that. But it was a rumor that was going on for a while. However, it started, the fire was hot enough to melt the cathedral's bells and the lead covering the wooden spire poured down like lava upon the roof, destroying it. Of course, both the Protestants and the Catholics saw the whole thing as God's displeasure at the other side. Not at their side, of course. They wouldn't see it as displeasure on their side, but at the other side. Also, Queen Elizabeth contributed towards the cost of the repairs, and the Bishop of London, Edmund Grindle, gave £1,200, although the spire was never actually rebuilt. The repair work on the roof wasn't done well, and even after it was fixed, just 50 years later, it was in a very dangerous condition. The St. Paul's itself would never actually be rebuilt. Inigo Jones, later on under the reign of uh, James and Charles I, had some plans of rebuilding it. That never happened. And it wasn't until the Great Fire of London destroyed it that Christopher Wren's masterpiece that is there today came about. So in 1561, the spire was destroyed. There's some cool, I did some episodes on Tudor London about maybe two years ago, a year and a half. And I did one on St. Paul's. And if you, again, I'll put them in the show notes. But if you look at the drawings, there's the drawings with the spire beforehand. It was huge. It was so enormous. And then afterwards, without the spire. And um, yeah, it's very sad. And it it was never actually rebuilt at all. So that happened on June the 4th of 1561. About a week later, there was another, another action item around the coinage. There was a proclamation calling in all the base coins. So Her Majesty, having now, as it were, achieved to the victory and conquest of this hideous monster of the base money. And of course, like I said, I did an episode on the debasement of the coinage. And this was when Henry had started adding other metals besides the precious metals in the coins to try and make them go further. Um, And by the time Elizabeth comes along, the coins were just so debased that they were worth hardly anything. And people in other countries weren't accepting them as payment for goods and for trade. So Elizabeth had to try to fix that. And so that's what that is referring to. On June 16th, just about two weeks after the fire at St. Paul's, my Lord Mayor and the Aldermen were sent for unto the court at Greenwich. According to Stowe's survey, after this mischance, the fire at St. Paul's, the Queen's Majesty directed her letters to the Mayor, willing him to take order for speedy repairing of the same. And she of her gracious disposition did presently give and deliver in gold a thousand marks with a warrant for a thousand loads of timber to be taken out of her woods or elsewhere. Within one month, the church was covered with boards and lead in a manner of a false roof against the weather. Concerning the steeple, diverse models were devised and made, but little else was done, though whose default God knoweth. Who knows whose fault it was? On Midsummer Day, there was a 
Triumph of the River. This is something that you see in movies from time to time. Elizabeth on the boat with Robert Dudley watching the fireworks. And this was Midsummer Day of 1561. She was at Greenwich. Henry Machen writes, Midsummer Day at Greenwich was a great triumph of the river against the court. There was a goodly castle made upon the Thames and men of arms within it and guns and spears for to defend the same. And about it were certain small pinnaces and great shooting of guns and hurling of balls of wildfire. And there was a bark for the Queen's Grace to be in for to see the pastime, which very late ere it was done. Then the Spanish ambassador de Quadra wrote to Philip, On the day of St. John, the Queen ordered me to be invited to a great feast given by Lord Robert. In the afternoon, we went on board a vessel from which we were to see the rejoicings, and she, Robert, and I being alone, they began joking, which she likes to do much better than talking about business. They went so far with their jokes that Lord Robert told her that if she liked, I could be the minister to perform the act of marriage. And she, nothing loath to hear it, said she was not sure whether I knew enough English. A week later, the Queen declined to create Lord Robert Dudley an earl. There was an opportunity to do that, and she did not. In July, Mary Queen of Scots' envoy came to Whitehall for an audience. They wanted to ask for passport and safe conduct for Mary, and the Queen said that she wasn't going to give her answer until July 13th, four days later. They came back on July 14th to the Charter House for the answer, and the Queen declined to grant a passport and safe conduct for Mary unless she first ratified the Treaty of Edinburgh that acknowledged Elizabeth as the rightful Queen in England. Throughout this time, the King of Sweden, Eric the 14th, was also negotiating for her hand in marriage. And by the end of August, he was trying to come to England to press his suit in person. That fellow at the beginning, John Dimmock, who was headed to Sweden with jewelry, he had actually told Eric that his best bet would be to come and flirt with the queen in person and court her and woo her. And so he was trying to do that. So in August, a messenger from the King of Sweden arrived on the 26th and stated that the king will shortly come as he was to embark on St. Lawrence's Day, which had been August 10th. Two ships have already arrived with his goods, and it is said that they expect eight more. I am much surprised at this because I know that the queen refused him a passport. She told him that she had already given him two, which were quite enough, and it was not meet that a woman who, like her, had made up her mind not to marry should be constantly giving passports to a young bachelor prince. If, however, he wished to come, the previous passports would suffice. De Quadra also says, I am sure that the king has not been summoned by the queen. He is a young man with plenty of money and ambitious to get away from his swamps. In September, September 10th, there's the first audience of William Maitland with Elizabeth. Maitland told the queen of the arrival in Scotland of the Queen of Scots because Mary hadn't been allowed to go into England, she sailed directly to Scotland, and her desire to continue the amity betwixt the realms. Then, on behalf of the nobility of Scotland, he wanted to use, he wanted Elizabeth to use Mary gently and favorably so that they might have a more straight knot, a closer bond, and he talked about the advantages that that might bring to both Mary and Elizabeth. And he talked about Mary's potential claim to succeed to be Elizabeth's heir. The queen said, I looked for another message from the queen, your sovereign, and marvel that she remembers not better her promise made to me before her departing from France 
after many delays of that thing which she in honor is bound to do, to wit, the ratification of the treaty, wherein she promised to answer me directly at her homecoming. Maitland said, Her Majesty was not fully fifteen days at home when I was dispatched towards your highness, and could not have the consultation requisite in a matter of such importance. Elizabeth responded, What consultation needs the queen to fulfill the thing whereunto she is obliged by her seal and handwriting? And Maitland didn't have an answer. The queen then basically said to Maitland that the most important thing, the principal matter, was that she is of the blood, she, Mary, is of the blood of England, my cousin and next kinswoman, so that nature must bind me to love her, which all I must confess to be true. I never meant evil toward her person nor her realm. When she, by bearing my arms and claiming the title of my crown, had given me just cause to be most angry with her, yet could I never find in my heart to hate her, inputting rather to the fault of others than to herself. As for the title of my crown, for my time I think she will not attain it, nor make impediment to my issue if any shall come from my body. For so long as I live, there shall be no other queen in England but I. The succession of the crown of England is a matter I will not meddle in. If her right be good, she may be sure that I will never hurt her, and I know none better nor that myself would prefer to her. A couple of days later, the news was that the King of Sweden was still coming. He was still on his way, but de Quadra wrote to Philip II, the queen does not think of marrying him and is in no pleasure at his coming. On the contrary, she has lately tried openly to stop it, but she has determined to dissemble with the Swede and let him come for fear he should marry her of Scotland. So she wanted to keep him from marrying Mary, Queen of Scots. She and her friends, therefore, wish to appear undecided and indifferent and to give the idea that perhaps she may marry the Swede. Lord Robert is consequently making a show of being very displeased, although he is in greater favor than ever. There is a statement made that an English merchant named John Dimmock, who we talked about, who recently went to Sweden to sell some jewels to the king, told him not to fail to come to England as the realm desired him. But then we get a hint of this rumor that would stick with Elizabeth for her entire reign. What is most of importance now, as I am informed, is that the queen is becoming dropsical. She is failing away and is extremely thin and the color of a corpse. Lady Northampton and Lady Cobham consider the queen in a dangerous condition. So there was a rumor that started around this time that Elizabeth actually had been hiding a pregnancy and that in September she gave birth to Robert Dudley's child. Now, of course, this is not true, but later on, a person would be captured, Arthur Dudley, who said that he was Elizabeth's child with Robert. And the whole thing just became this rumor that went out of control. But this is where it starts with this idea that Elizabeth was very sick and dropsical in September. The King of Sweden really wanted to come. And even as late as October, William Cecil had wrote to the Earl of Sussex in Ireland, the King of Sweden was on the seas and about the 8th of September blown homeward. They say he is so earnest that he will come by land. Some of his treasures and horses be to come to London already. So the King of Sweden really wanted to get to London and woo Elizabeth. Later in September, another major event would happen that would kind of come to define Elizabeth in a lot of ways. And that was the the birth of a son to Lady Catherine Grey. Of course, that's Jane Grey's sister. And 
There was some historical fiction recently on the Grey sisters. And of course, Lady Catherine Grey had married without permission and had had a boy, a son with Lord Hartford. And they agreed on their marriage, but could not bring either a witness or a minister. So the uh, the writer, the chronicler of this said the matter lies chiefly in the queen's mercy. And of course, the queen did not really have any mercy when it came to female relatives marrying without her permission and then having sons. So that happened in September of that year. The other major event in 1561 was the publication of Beware the Cat, which was this English satire and horror story written by a printer's assistant and poet, William Baldwin. He actually wrote it in 1553, but it hadn't been published until 1561. Some academics say that it's the first novel ever published in English of any kind. It actually hadn't been published when it was first written at the end of the reign of Edward VI. It wasn't published because of the rise of Mary Tudor to the throne. It's actually a horror story about a cat. In 1570, there's an edition that's entitled A Marvelous History Interlude, Beware the Cat, containing diverse, wonderful, and incredible matters, very pleasant and merry to read. It describes activities of a master streamer in this fictional debate concerning the question of whether animals possess the ability, the capacity to reason. And apparently this account, this fake account, talks about Streamer's activities while he was in London, living at the house of John Day, who was a Tudor printer. We've talked about him before. There was a fictional conversation he witnessed talking about a man that had heard cats report the death of another cat called Grimalkin. And apparently Grimalkin appeared to an Irish man and his son who had taken refuge in a church devoured a sheep and a cow, and then the cat ate the son, and the peasant killed him and escapes. The discussion turns to a debate on whether Grimalkin was actually a disguised witch. It's this very interesting book about cats and witches, and it is the first English horror story and perhaps the first English novel. By the end of the year, there's still talk of Mary, Queen of Scots. That issue hasn't died down yet. William Cecil wrote to Nicholas Throckmorton of a potential meeting between Elizabeth and Mary, and he wrote on December 22nd, I find a great desire in both of these queens to have an interview. But the year ended just as it began with holiday festivities. On Saturday, the 27th, came riding through London a lord of misrule in clean, complete harness gilt with a hundred great horses and gentlemen riding gorgeously with chains of gold and their horses goodly trapped unto the temple, for there was a great cheer all Christmas and great revels as ever was the gentlemen of the temple every day, for many of the council were there. There was playing and singing unto the court, great cheer, gorgeously appareled with great chains. So that is how the year ended. So that's it for this week. I'll have a link to all of the different episodes we talked about, all the different notes at englandcast.com slash 1561. Let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line. You can text 8016-TESCO. I think that's 801-683-9756. Or you can join the new Tudor Learning Circle, which is a free social network just for Tudor history nerds. TudorLearningCircle.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you are having an amazing start to your summer. All right. We'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Blow northern wind, a sandful may be sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrieg, at soli samlies on sea. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>